Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. If you want to open your Bibles, we're in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at two stories in this in today's section. It's uncanny sometimes how the Bible sort of unfolds as I'm teaching it. I don't know if it's that saying, you know, when you when you when you give a guy a hammer, everything becomes a construction project or whatever. But it just seems that things kind of have been unfolding in a certain way. It's Memorial Weekend. This is uh, really my least favorite of all holidays. It used to be just a weekend for barbecuing. But when you start losing buddies to combat that are close friends that are your peers, it changes the whole thing. And so I kind of. I kind of sort of dread this holiday. Um, we go to Fort Rosecrans every every year, and I I, I uh, visit uh, the remains of, of friends of mine. And so today's story, there's two of them. They're very very heavy stories. If we allow ourselves to get into the text, so often we read through Bible stories, and we today it's a centurion's servant close friend who's on his deathbed calling out for help the second is a mother who is a widow who lost her only son to death and these are heavy stories and we just kind of read over them sometimes and and lose the 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 weightiness of them and so i'm gonna i'm praying that today that as we look at these we could look at them with with soberness and and the reality of of what they're conveying So let's pray, and then we'll read the text. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we pray, Lord, that your word would uh, penetrate our hearts. Lord, we ask that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text. Lord, that we would rightly understand these stories. Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts to hear your truth. Lord, that you would convict us in a way that we need. Lord, we're all in different places in our walk with you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would touch each one of us through your word today. Uh, Father, we thank you for the truths and the hope that lies in these stories. And Father, as uh, death kind of presses in upon us, Lord, we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you, the author of life, the one who conquered death, and the one who gives us hope. We love you, Lord. Uh, that this life isn't all there is. We long for that day with you, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. When he completed his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him, To come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built our synagogue. Now Jesus started on the way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all. 
And they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in the surrounding district. And Father, we thank you for your word. We come to you now and we ask for help as we navigate our way through this story. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I ended up in ministry. I ended up in this place of teaching the Bible. I'm trying to say this in the most diplomatic way possible. Um, I, I, I ended up in this position from a Navy SEAL 12 years in, eight years away from retirement, simply because I, as I became a Christian, I started studying the Bible. I had this deep longing to learn the scriptures that, that ended me up in sort of Bible college through correspondence with Moody Bible Institute. Then I wanted to further my studies, and I kept going through different, my Bible college and then seminary, just digging into the Word, which then translated into this teaching of the Bible, which I have a, a strong desire for. I really, the part that I, I, I didn't come into the ministry because I had like a burning compassion for sort of people. I know it sounds horrible for a pastor to say that, but I know some people who like just, they have a, a, a compassion, a sense of wanting to reach out and to, to, to share Christ with, with a certain country or people group, or, or they have a heart for addicts, or they have a heart for whatever, you fill in the blank. I kind of just really loved the Bible, and it was just, I thought that I grew up in a church where it was so boring to listen to the teaching, and I was like, I'm like, man, this, there are great stories in here. I want to teach this. So as a pastor, I found myself in the last few years in situations that I did not anticipate myself being in. I see death on a regular basis, often. There, there are times, even preparing for this, in the, the, this morning during the worship time, where I have this sense of just under the surface in my heart, just welling up is this desire to just start break down and bawling because of the pain and the sorrow and the things that I see. There's a there's an intimacy sometimes that I've been exposed to that I didn't anticipate. Standing there with a widow over the body of her husband or a mother over their child, to be there in that sort of environment. There, there's there's no I, can't, I don't even know how to explain it. But there's a closeness there when you stand there to comfort somebody that I certainly did not go into the ministry to to do that role, but I find myself there. And there are in those moments that you feel just helpless. Like they look to me to represent God and how can I come like what? How do I do this? Because the reality is, is we all sort of struggle with like our finiteness. Like, I've never kind of crossed over to the other side. Like, oh, I died. I went to heaven. Let, I'm, let me tell you all about it, guys. I haven't been there. Like, we're all on this journey alone. And when we start looking at life and death, it gets hard. I remember my first funeral. It was my grandfather on my mom's side. I was a little kid. I didn't really, really remember, like, remember what was going on. He died. And then I remember later, then my other grandparents passed away. And then when I started getting into high school, I think I was a freshman or sophomore, then a kid who was a junior who I didn't know, he got in a car accident and died. And then when I was a junior, two girls died that were like in my class. And then what I found is the longer we live, the more we're exposed to people passing away. Last year, last Memorial Day, tomorrow I'm going to go to Fort Rosecrans. Last year I went there expecting to go visit the the remains of my grandparents and my friend Tom Retzer, who was killed in 2003. Well, walking through Rosecrans, I had this, it was, it was almost everywhere I turned, it felt like there were, I would see gravestones of people that I knew that I didn't know were buried there. It seemed everywhere I turned. And we don't like, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we dread going to funerals. In January of 2007, a dear friend of mine, four years over, older than me, we went through SEAL training together. He was diagnosed with brain cancer. This is a guy who was on the leapfrogs, one of the most physically fit people I know. Coach, we called him. Gus Kaminsky, because after Coach K, so he was our, he was our leader, and we called him Coach all the time. 
he was with the Navy parachute team. These guys are like the, like they have to fit the role of looking like, you know, you know, you know, yeah, Barbie and Ken. Like they have to be sort of the models that have all the physical fit built. They skydive into the sports arenas around the, the world, kind of recruiting people. This guy got brain cancer and he's been battling it for the last few years. We've been, hey man, I'm praying for you, but to totally just help, like, I pray for you, but like, you know, I mean, like, you just feel like there's nothing you can do. And on Friday, I get the text message. 45 minutes ago, Gus, or Gut Coach, he died. And it's just this, oh, like, I'm going to have to go to his funeral. I might even have to do his, like, I'm like, I don't want to go to his funeral. Like, I don't want to go to his funeral. I don't want to do his funeral. I don't know if I'm doing his funeral. I don't know what it is. And the reality is, is I think I'm going to assume we feel this way because this is how I kind of feel. We don't like being faced with this because the reality is we're kind of like on this conveyor belt and we don't know when the bottom's going to drop out on us. Like we're faced with our own mortality. And going to the cemetery, the verse in Ecclesiastes that came to me during the worship, when I go to a cemetery, when I visit, a verse that I struggle with, or it makes me ponder at least, is Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Verse 1, it says, a good name is better than good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. What? It goes on to say it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. And I think that this is, is because when we go to a funeral and we see death, it forces us to evaluate our lives in the scope of eternity. We, we go to funerals, and as a pastor, I'm the guy, like I'm crying trying to do the funerals. But it forces us to kind of like, like this is almost more than we can handle as humans. It's almost like we weren't created to die. And we weren't. But sin entered the world and has wrecked this place. And so our bodies are like passing away. Like Joel's birthday, happy birthday was yesterday. And this morning he's, he's looking at me going, I'm 62. That's old. Like there's no, like it's old. What happened? Like, I don't feel 62. Like, 62 is an old guy, and that's not who I am. It's not that old. <laughs> My dad's 74, and he often talks to me going, man, I, I feel like I'm about 16 on the inside, and my outside's just deteriorating. I don't know what's going on. I mean, he knows what's going on. Sin entered the world and wrecked God's plan. And God has been in this business of redemption ever since sin entered in. And the story we're going to look at begins here. Verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, when he completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. And so Jesus, in this map here, I'm not going to, I'll just get it over with right now. So this is the Dead Sea. There's the Jordan River that runs north to south. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Mediterranean Sea over here, 44 miles this way. On the northern western shoreline is Capernaum. There's hills up here. So Jesus, like my hands, like too much coffee today. But right there, that dot right there. And then from there in the story, the first story takes place in Capernaum. The second story takes place down here at Nain. This is a town. Nazareth is just about 20 miles, I think, north of it. Maybe that's not 20 miles. I, maybe it's six miles if my memory serves me right. It's a little bit north, south of Nazareth. That's Nazareth. This is Nain. There's, Nain is like a totally insignificant town, not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And so we learn about this man. Jesus had finished his Sermon on the Mount. It's morning time, most likely. He was up all night praying. The crowd found him as the sun came up. He calls his 12 apostles. He gets around, he preaches his Sermon on the Mount. When this is done, he heads down into Capernaum. 
And as he's going down, we're introduced to this man who's a centurion. A centurion was a Roman soldier. This is significant in the story because up to this point, we've only dealt with Jewish people. The Jews had it in their mind that that God, the Messiah, was kind of for them. Not because that's what's in the Old Testament, but that's just what they'd started to think. And so here's this Gentile, a non-Jewish person living in Capernaum, a town which really wasn't a Roman providence, but they had established this presence there. A centurion would have a hundred men under, under him. He would be appointed by somebody of importance. That means he was connected. We're going to learn that this guy was of, a, of significant wealth and importance. And now he has a slave. And don't start thinking slave like this is somebody that's not like close to him. This is somebody that he dearly cared about. Somebody he served in the military with was his, one of his probably personal assistants. This guy is on his deathbed. It's bad. When you're standing over somebody you love and you can see the life ebbing out of them. This is when we realize how powerless and helpless we are. We can We pray. And God may intervene, and sometimes he intervenes, sometimes he doesn't intervene. I would say that God intervenes a whole lot more than we give him credit for. It's just when you finally die, we think, oh, God didn't intervene. But how many times have I been sick in my life up to this point? I've been a ton of times I've been sick, and I've gotten well every time so far. Praise be to God that he's given me this. A day will come when it won't happen, unless the rapture comes before that. I'm going to hold my comments about last week. <laughs> um, okay, back on track here. So he's, here's this servant, this guy in his house. He's, he's desperate. He's dying. He's, I don't know if he's got the, the, the guttural gasping for air at this point. If he's not conscious, he sees that there's nothing left that they can do. The author of this book is Luke, who's a physician. This guy's a goner. He's toast. And the centurion in verse 3, he'd heard about Jesus. I don't know if that means that he just heard about Jesus or that he heard Jesus was in the area and working his way in. We don't really know. But he'd heard all about Jesus. He'd heard that Jesus has been healing people, sparing people, and this is an act of desperation. Maybe he'll intervene here. I have no other options. And so Jesus sent some of the Jewish elders... Asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And so he gets this group of elders together. These are, he's Gentile. He goes to the elders. Because as a Gentile, Jesus, as a Jew, would not have even entered his property to touch him. He would be unclean. These, there was major divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. Centurion is a guy, he loved the Jewish people. He took care of them. We're going to see that he built the synagogue there in Capernaum. He wants to stack his deck, is what I think. Is like, oh, I want to get Jesus. I better get the guys, the highest, el- the elders of this town that are Jewish to go to Jesus because they're going to have the most pull with him, and maybe then he'll, he'll come. And so he sends the elders to go help in the situation, and the elders go. They come to Jesus. When they came to Jesus in verse 4, they earnestly implored him, saying, and it's subtle But the Jewish elders and what they say, they miss the mark. They blow it. They really blow it here. It shows that they don't understand how God works. Let me explain. They come to him. They're begging Jesus. They're imploring him. And they say he is worthy for you to grant this to him. Now, later, we're going to see that the centurion sends messengers to Jesus saying, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I'm not worthy for you to even, I'm not worthy. But they come to Jesus and they say, he's worthy. He deserves, you're obligated, you owe him to come. Now, why? They say he loves our nation and it was he who built us our synagogue. He's not a Jewish man. He's not a believer. He, loves the, he likes the, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. The synagogue he built for them. Go to the next slide, please, Deborah. I'm going to show you. This is modern day. Oh, maybe we can get the lights turned dim down a little bit so you guys can see the uh, dawns on it. 
We can just kill them all real quick. This is Israel last September. And then the other, yeah, let's see here. We can take, all right, we're getting closer. Okay. So this is, I'm looking, I'm on the northwest side of the synagogue today in Capernaum. This is back in September. This is the synagogue he built. Now you'll notice here that there's like a black line. And that below here is black rocks. And above it's white marble. The white marble is not from Jesus' era. It was built, I think, 400 years later. But the foundation is from Jesus' time. So these black rocks, and it would have been black all the way, the foundation is legitimate. Those rocks were paid for by this centurion. Very expensive, huge, bigger than this building, this, this synagogue. We can turn on the lights and we can go back to the first slide. And so... These elders come to Jesus and they say he's worthy for you to come help him because of he loves our nation and he bought us the stuff the, 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 to put it into our sort of world. This church, we got a bunch of land and we say, oh, we want to get a builder, bigger sanctuary. We want to do something. We take a bunch of offerings. We can't raise the money to do it. All of a sudden, some guy who's not even a Christian, doesn't really care about us, writes a check for $5 million and says, hey, go ahead and build that building. He gets sick. And then we go to Jesus and we say, hey, he funded this. You owe him. Go help him out. It's a totally a work-based theology. God doesn't owe us anything. Anything. Anything that we have from God is God's grace poured upon us every breath that we take every day that we have i love it at the end of at the end of jonah and at the end of job and i'm sure there's other places in the bible at the end of the whole thing when these guys are kind of throwing temper tantrums before god god kind of looks at him and says where were you when i put the stars in the sky where were you when i formed the heavens and the earth i don't know you tell me you created me you know it's like God doesn't owe us anything. Anything we have is God's graciousness to us. We don't want fairness with God. See, we're born into sin. Fairness we don't want. We want his mercy. And so we need to guard our hearts of saying, God, I'm angry at you. Why did you do this? Why, why didn't you spare my friend? Why didn't you do this? Say, Lord, thank you for this life that you've given me. Thank you for what what I have now. And if we really look at the big picture, if you go back to Genesis, when sin entered the world, death is actually a form of God's grace. And we it's hard for us to kind of comprehend that because this is all we see and know. Can you imagine with the second law of thermodynamics, our bodies breaking down? Like I'm 36. My back hurts me all the time. I can't imagine 80 years from now, 100 years from now, how bad this pain would be. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, God expelled them from the Garden of Eden. What also happens is an angel was sent to guard against the tree of life so that they wouldn't have to keep going. And death is actually God's way of restoring our bodies. But it's by faith. And so Jesus hears this from them. He doesn't go into this big diatribe about this. But this idea of works-based theology, we have to get out. I was raised in the Catholic Church. The idea of purgatory. Somebody dies. Start praying for him. Start praying. Like, hopefully he can earn, earn his salvation. Hopefully he can do more good and, and pay God back so God lets him in. The idea of reincarnation. Ah. Man, I think I blew it. I'm going to go back a step down. I'm going to go back to be a dog. And then I'm going to, like, hopefully I can get up. It's the idea of you, you owe God. And if you don't fall short, then you're, you're going to get punished for it. We can't do We can't anything. Jesus comes into the world, lives the perfect life, dies on the cross, pays our sin totally and completely, and offers it to us. It's graciousness. And this guy gets it. Verse 6. Now, Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. 
So now this story is recorded in Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7. There's some inconsistencies in the story that I want to address just for the sake of addressing. It's, I could probably talk about it and you guys would never even know. In Luke, at this point, the centurion sees that Jesus is approaching his house. He sends friends to Jesus. Matthew records that the centurion went out to him. So from a legal perspective, if a, if a centurion sent somebody on his behalf, it was just as if he was there speaking on his behalf. And so Matthew re- reports it from like the legal aspect. And so here's more of the like, this is we're Gentiles. We're not under the law. We don't, you know, this is the guys come and check out the message that this centurion says. The Jews just said he is worthy for you to do this. You, you owe him. He, he loves our nation. He loves our people. He built our synagogue. He's a rich dude and he's very generous. It would be good if you could hook him up because then he might fund our budget next year. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of what's going on. And I love the message that he says. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself further. For I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. I get this image of he's like, I mean, he's not literally on his face before Jesus, but his attitude is like, you know what? You're God. You owe me nothing. I am not worthy for you to come into my house. He goes on to say for this reason, because he understood who he was in comparison to who Jesus was. He says, for this reason, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word. All through Luke so far, we see the authority in the spoken word of Jesus. He was doing great miracles, but the people were marveled at what he said. He says stuff and it happens. God spoke creation into existence. The power of God's word is beyond our comprehension. And he asked him, he said, don't even just don't even take another step. Just say the word. You say be healed. He's good to go. Don't trouble your rest of your day. He said, and my servant will be healed for I am a man under authority. See, he's a soldier. He understands this, this hierarchy, this pecking order. He's been placed under authority. He has the authority to tell people go and they go, come and they come, do this and they do that. that I was pretty close to what the text says. I only have to read it. That's pretty much what it says. He's like, He's like, hey, I, I can tell people what to do. You can do the same thing. He understands the authority of Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 and 2 talks about that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the universe. All things are held together by him. Jesus wants anything done. He just speaks and it happens. He doesn't need to come have a big show over his guy. He just has to say, be healed. Probably just has to think it. I'm not, I've never been in God's shoes. So I don't know how it all works out. But I mean, he has the ability. He can just do whatever he wants. And when Jesus heard this, see, he's got this huge crowd of people following him. Matthew records, I'm pretty sure that, uh, that there's a leper that was healed in between this story. Now, I don't know if Matthew's telling in chronological order. But there's this huge crowd that had followed. And these guys come to Jesus the second round said, hey, he said he's not even worthy for you to come under his roof. He said he doesn't even want to trouble you. He's not worthy. Just say the word. He understands. He's a man under authority. He, he told us to go and we went to you. Just say the word. And Jesus just stops in his tracks. This is a Gentile, a dog, according to the Jews. They did not like the Gentiles. They were not religious like them. They didn't do all of the shows. And he turns around to the crowd and he says, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Jesus looks at the soldier and says, guys, you're doing all of this religion. You're doing this stuff. And you're not operating by faith. You're operating by works. You're following economy with your relationship with God. You think if you do this, then God owes you. God doesn't owe us anything. This is a man that understands he's not worthy. He doesn't. God has given him everything he has and everything is God's grace. And he, by faith, says, Jesus, if you just say the word, you could, this man could be healed. 
And when those who had sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Jesus in Matthew says, hey, he tells them, by the, it's, he, the guy's healed. Just go and you'll find him healthy. They go back. The guy's healthy. And I think there's a subtle lesson here also. This centurion, he operated like he didn't see Jesus face to face. He sent the elders. Then he, as Jesus approaches, he sends these friends of his. Then all of a sudden, this guy is well. How many, well, there's, this is not a question. This is a, one of those, this is, a, I think it's a rhetorical question. I think. How many times have you cried out to God to help you in a situation? And he answered, and you forgot that you totally even asked him. A ton of times. You're desperate. You're praying out to God. Oh, God, help me. God, help me. Then suddenly, everything kind of resolves. It just kind of resolves itself. And then you go on your merry way, and you totally like, oh, glad that worked out. (laughs) Maybe God had something to do with that. Let's not forget. Like, I'm horrible at prayer journals. Like, I really, like, or like any kind of journal, like journal, whatever type, I'm bad at it. But I think this is why journals are so good. Like prayer journals, in particular, I prayed about this, and then this happened. So that when we're faced with crisis, we can look back upon our lives and say, I remember when this happened, and then this was the outcome. God, you were faithful then. I can trust you now. And so the next story, as we read in verse 11, moving on to story number two. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, I'm sorry, verse 11. Now, afterwards, he went to a city called Nain. And he and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. So the crowd, I get, I get this picture as Jesus' ministry unfolded over the course of the three years. Like it kept growing and growing and growing. And he keeps saying, go away, like sending them away. He's trying to make the crowd smaller. But this crowd is developing. They're coming into the town of Nain. They get to the gate that surrounds the city. And as they're approaching the gate, they see something. Now, as he approached the city of the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out. So I don't know if it's a box, open casket, but it's like they're carrying this body somehow where they can see him. They see, oh, there's a dead body. To a Jewish person under the law, this was, you don't touch it, you'd be defiled by it. And as we look at this story, this is not common. People raising from the dead. Like this does not, like let's not start building a case of this happened only three times in the entire new testament is jesus recorded of of raising somebody from the dead not counting himself there's this story there's lazarus shortest verse in the bible john eleven thirty five, where jesus weeps and then what's his name i know the guy's name is jazz jazz jairus's daughter tabitha those are the three and, and none of these stories do I sense that Jesus is trying to make a big display over anything. Like, he's not trying to say, oh, look at me, I'm a big faith healer. Like, for two of the stories, I know for sure that Jesus is his compassion. The sorrow and, and pain that he felt looking at the people that he created. Because seeing death is horrible. Like, when it's somebody you love, it's hard. And what he sees is, this is the only son of his mother. In this story, we're going to see four words that jump out at me. We see his mother twice. His mother for her, to her, his mother. This whole story isn't about the crowd. It's not even about the dead guy. As I look at this story, it's very conceivable that this guy got the short end of the stick. He could have been in heaven and glory with the Lord, happy as can be. (laughs) He gets pulled by the ear back to here. Like, he really could have been robbed temporarily. This whole thing is based on this mother. This mother to her, to her, for her. It's the only son of this lady. And she was a widow. See, there's, there's no social security during this time. There's no any sort of anything. Your social security was your husband and your sons. They took care of you. So this lady had already buried her husband. 
And I don't know when her son died, how he died, anything about that. But I've seen widows. I've seen parents bury their children. I've had to hug moms that are totally devastated at the death of their child. One of the deaths in my journey, I remember, was my step-uncle. He died. And my stepmom's mother, I just remember her like weeping, saying, parents shouldn't have to bury their children. And it was like probably like 13 when I heard her say this, and it just like gripped me. Like it doesn't seem fair. See, it's all about fair. So here's this woman dreading going to this funeral. Like, I don't know about you, but the whole going to the actual funeral, I don't like, is there any way around this? And as a pastor, it's like, I can't not show up for these things, especially if I'm supposed to be doing it. But man, I love weddings so much better than funerals. I mean, it's just like the gravity, the gravity, the graveness of the whole. But see, this is the time for us to wake up. Wake up. It's 100% ratio. And we realize, uh uh-oh. Like, especially like, I'm only 36 and people are like dropping. It's like, okay. Fair seems like I should have, you know, if I could make it to 70, I would be so grateful. I've had 36 years. I have a lot to be grateful for. And so here's this, this woman. She's, she, is, she now effectively, when her money runs out from whatever savings her son had, whenever her resources, she's done. Statistically speaking, now she's going to be on the corner begging for money. And I love what that verse 13 says. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. This is true to today. Like John eleven thirty five, the shortest verse in the Bible, like kids joke, it's Jesus wept. That's a verse I can memorize. But if you start thinking about it, Jesus goes, Lazarus has died. His sisters race towards him. He looks around at the people grieving the loss of somebody that had just died. And, and he wept. He looked at the pain and the sorrow that had come through sin. And he's weeping. And it strikes me that Jesus knows he's about to raise the guy from the dead. He's going to go to his tomb and say, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, I don't know, he's wrapped it. Like, I don't know if he's like stripping to the door, you know, like, can somebody help me out here? Like, I'm like, I'm, uh, I'm all wrapped up. Like, Jesus knew he's about to, yet he, in that moment, Weeps. Painful tears. And here he, he's just going to town and here this lady is. He sees the pain and the sorrow and the agony that she's in. That he never intended for her to go through. He didn't intend us to experience death. He felt compassion for her and he says, don't weep. Now, I don't know, like, I would never be sarcastic with Jesus, but it's like, dude, you weeped at Lazarus' death. Why can't I weep now? <laughs> like, this is like, it's painful. But he wants to comfort her. See, Jesus has what I don't have. Like, I can't, like, like, I want to comfort people in these situations, but I realize I'm just, like, man, I'm on this journey too. But the hope is in Christ. It says, don't work. And he goes up and he touches the coffin. So here the dudes are like walking down the road. I don't know how many, four guy, eight guys, however many it takes to carry this guy. Jesus puts his hand on it, defiles himself according to the law, touches it. He says, don't weep. He touches the coffin and the bears came to a halt. They're carrying this thing and then they see him just touching it. Like it's not a normal inclination. If you go somewhere to a funeral where there's an open casket, like we're like, want to go look but there's like this like invisible like shield sort of the body that restricts us now those that love the person most will touch it will hold will caress because of their pain but if you're like removed from it you're kind of like ah. it's like touching it you kind of like are acknowledging like what this this is going to be me one day he touches the coffin it comes to a halt 
And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Can you imagine the look on these people's faces? Dead bodies just don't rise. Arise, young man. All of a sudden, this guy sits up. And he begins to speak. I really wish Luke or somebody would have shared with us what he said. (laughs) Like I picture him up in the air, probably shoulder high, sits up. (laughs) Hey, chaps, what's going on here? Wait a minute. Like, wait, I'm going to. Hey, guys, you can put this thing down. I don't need it anymore. Like, I'm I'm good. Or was he like, oh, man, I was like in heaven and now I'm back to this place. Like, I don't know, like, he started unraveling? Like, like, did he, like, suddenly, like, I mean, when you get buried, did he, was he wearing, like, his suit? You know, like, I don't know what, like, I don't know what he's wearing. But he starts to speak to these people. And can you imagine the look on these people's faces? Like, the dead bodies I've been around, you're like, going, I think I see breathing. Because, like, we're not used to, like, and all of a sudden it goes, hello, you know, <laughs> like. And as a young pastor, like this, like going to mortuaries and the medical examiners, it's not a fun thing. You don't want to hear voices. You don't want them to start coming up. <laughs> these guys are all there, huge crowd. But he sits up. He's done with the thing. And then we read, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. This was not about this guy at all. See, don't read this and think, oh, this guy escaped death. He's good to go. It wasn't done for him. It was done for her. Jesus' heart was breaking over this mother, so she gave her son back. Everybody in this story, everybody has died in this story. Like this was reviving. And he gives him back to his mother. And the response is, I think, totally natural. Fear gripped them all. Fear is a wonderful gift that the Lord has given us. Because we realize that God is huge. And anything that we have, like, like the, the, just the whole idea, like being a father and seeing like a kid being born and to see the life, it's a miracle. And, and when we're faced with death and to realize that this miracle, it has to be because, like, it just doesn't happen. Like it, like the whole evolutionary thought, like that takes a ton of faith. Like I've never blown up anything and had like a bunch of good stuff come out of it. And the intricacy, like that, you know, that word intricacy, like that, the details, like living in Valley Center a few months ago, I think it's been months, we went to a pig slaughter. I went to a pig slaughter, the Frederick's house. And the guy that was slaughtering the pig and going through and showing the various parts. I was awestruck. Like, I mean, I know a pig is a pig and we're like, that's this whole idea. But to see like the guy pull out the lungs and to show the lungs and to inflate them and how it works and to pull out the heart and to put the hose on the one side and to show that the blood can only flow the other way and to show an eyeball that's connected to a nerve that all like, this is amazing. Like, there are not scientists that can create this. It just, we as humans cannot create this. You take an aircraft, it's nothing compared to the, this creation that God's created in a pig. And when we have this, this fear of the Lord, it's a good thing. Because we realize who we are in light of who God is. And they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and the surrounding district. When they saw this great fear, the only explanation that they could come up with is that God came to earth and did this great thing. There was no other way around it. The guy was dead as a doornail, and he raised him. And as I look at this story, there's a couple of things that I take to heart from this. As I walk to the grave tomorrow and see my friends that have gone before me, the thing that we need to take from the story is first is from the centurion. Jesus is Lord over all. The last thing we read last week, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? 
Jesus showed to us who he is. He's Lord, creator, and sustainer over all. And we should come before him in humility, in gratitude, and thankfulness. There's so much we can be thankful for. And I love that the Bible portrays these pictures of humanity, the struggle, what we deal with in this world. Nothing drove me crazier as a kid and before I became like a Christian and a church where they taught the Bible is where like the pastor was up front talking and like the world and the life he was describing was so like disconnected from what I was seeing, like the reality. Like life this side of heaven is hard. Like we're going to face things because sin, there's horrible things, crimes that are being committed against innocent people. There's just like seeing friends killed in combat is horrible, but it's even almost more horrifying when I see a 40-year-old man who is in perfect health die of brain cancer. Like, that's like, why? But then in this story, we see the compassion of God for us. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, yet without sin. And so as we go through our life, as we're faced with death and our mortality and struggles of like, well, all other struggles beyond death, like money and stuff, like they really seem like kind of insignificant and and like the light of the big ones. But as we face these, as we go through these, as our bodies are breaking down, we know that God can sympathize with us. He not only knows what we're going through, but he has compassion on us. And as a church, we need to realize this, like the church is for people who are hurting and broken and suffering. And it's been like all the time, like we're, we're doing these church, we do it in like a little church membership class. And, and I'm not really like a big church membership sort of guy. So it's hard when the guy on the top is like, you know what I mean? Like I, we have to do these things and we can't, but, but the church, like we think of church membership or what I thought of church membership was like. Well, every other, like, significant club I've been in, like, to be a SEAL, like, you really had to prove yourself. Like, you do X, 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 and then we'll, like, let you join the club. You want to go to a school and get it, join the fraternity. There's X, you got to do all this stuff. You want to get a diploma, you got to do all this stuff. This isn't church membership. Church membership is simply, like, hey, we're all in this together. We're going through life. We're united through Jesus. We're just sinners saved by grace. And all the new membership classes is really me sharing the story of how I ended up here, being able to talk on a more intimate level, people just kind of sharing how they ended up here, learning about the church, and then going forward. It's not this, like, you got to get yourself all cleaned up, and then once you get 17 references showing that you've attained a certain sort of spiritual um, aptitude, then we'll have a committee and we'll vote on you to see if you're in or you're out. No, no. This is like, no, this is, if this is your church home, this is where you're growing. This is just to help us get connected to community because life is hard. And when the bottom drops out, you need community and especially community that has the biblical worldview that Jesus is Lord over all. And whatever you're going through, we can help you and encourage you through. Which leads to the last point is all our hope is built on Christ. Apart from Christ, there's absolutely nothing. The pain that we feel is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, speaking of the resurrection. And verses 56 through 57 say the sting of death is sin. Like death stings. Like one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It talks about this struggle that we have on this earth. Like with our, our it talks about our tents passing away and groaning for our new bodies at the same time, like longing to be here and this this tension this is a sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ see jesus would go to the grave he would die three days later he'd rise from the grave he would ascend into heaven the bible records in chapter 15 that same chapter that he appeared to all kinds of people upwards of 600 people who were still present at the time of writing that could have come forward and said this didn't happen but we're there like, no, I saw him rise. I saw him. I saw all of this. He t- touched him, felt him. He did absolutely without a doubt. 
So our hope is in him. Our hope totally. There's, there's nothing like you can, you can do wheat shots of grass, you know, to be healthy. You can exercise all of you want. You can, like, you name it. There's all kinds of stuff. Drink bottled water till you're blue in the face. Take all your vitamins. You, you're still decaying and wasting away. And all we see this little mix up with the all all mix up with the music is because it wasn't my worst. But on Friday night, get the news about my friend passing away, and suddenly, like the weightiness of this, and the, just the sorrow in my heart, like heart, like tears just right here, wanting to like like just to, to break down and start bawling, like I just can't take it anymore. And a song that I don't know why it was in my head, I just couldn't get it out. It's a song we're going to close with. I don't even know the name of it, but it says, All who are thirsty, all who are weak. Is that it? All who are thirsty? <laughs> That's the title of the song. All who are thirsty. All who are weak. We don't have to raise our hands, but I will, because that's me. Like, I'm thirsty. I'm weak. I'm, like, it says, come to the fountain. Dip your heart. I love it. Your heart, not your hand, not your mouth, your heart into the stream of life. Let the pain and the sorrow be washed away. Man, I get goosebumps reading these words. And the waves of his mercy is the deep cries out deep. And it says, come, Lord Jesus, come. And this idea of realizing who we are. Man, I want eternity with him. This world is painful. And so we're going to stand. The worship team is going to come up and we're going to pray. And we're going to sing this song. And my prayer is that this singing would be worship and yeah, stand and we'll pray standing up that we'll sing this song and it will be a prayer. It'll be worship to the Lord. It will be from our hearts to him. And father, we do thank you and praise you, Lord, that our hope is found in you. Father, we thank you that Jesus conquered the grave. Father, we thank you for these stories of, of getting a, a, a glimpse of who you are. Lord, you speak and it's done. You have ultimate authority over all. And we bow down and we worship you, Lord. Father, we thank you that as we face death, as we see this life passing away, we thank you that Christ overcame death. And that we have the spirit that dwells with us. That we no longer have to fear death. The passages that say that we'll be swallowed up by life for the Christian who believes in Christ. And so, Father, we pray that as believers, as followers of you, Lord, that you would help us to keep our eyes on the heavenly things. As this world presses down, Lord, help us to see this world, this life through your eyes. Lord, I pray for this church that you would help us to be an encouragement to one another. We love you, Lord. We praise you and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.